0: Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast. An in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 72, The Overt Axe. Hello everyone, and welcome back. In our last episode, we began laying the groundwork for America's entry into the First World War. We talked about how although the American people had no desire to get involved, cracks in the old proverbial wall had begun to appear by the end of 1916. German actions in Belgium and on the high seas confirmed to many Americans that it was only a matter of time before the war reached their shore, and although the threat of German troops marching down Pennsylvania Avenue remained laughably remote, necessary precautions had begun to be taken, most notably with the National Defense Act in May of 1916. That being said, the United States entered 1917 firmly committed to neutrality. If anything, the very thought of war made neutrality even more appealing. David Lloyd George notes in his memoir that the prospect of American involvement in 1917 was as remote and improbable as it had been in August 1914. President Wilson had, after all, just won re-election on the slogan that he had kept America out of the war. Wilson's victory not only reaffirmed the neutral case, it also served as a notice to the warring parties. The United States was not interested in your war. Thank you and goodbye." Yet, in a span of just 65 days, from February 1st to April 6th, the United States went from committed neutral to full-blown participant. From the moment Wilson signed the declaration, the causes that led to America's intervention in the Great War have been a hotly contested historical battleground. Unlike our other late arrivals, Italy, Bulgaria, and Romania, the United States was not enticed by linguistic ties or territorial compensation, nor was there a plausible military threat aimed against it. So we need to ask ourselves, why did the United States get involved? I will preface by saying that there is no definitive answer to that question there is no single cause we can point to and say, yep, that's the one. Instead, there were three events, all of which took place over that 65-day period, that would convince America war was the only option. The three events are, of course, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare on February 1st, the revelation of the Zimmerman telegram on February 28th, And finally, the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II over in Russia, on March 2nd. Collectively, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare, the revelation of the Zimmerman telegram, and the abdication of Tsar Nicholas would push the United States to war. And naturally, these are the three events we will spend this episode talking about. But before we begin, just a heads up that we will not be doing an in-depth account of the Tsar's abdication here today. We'll be covering that in episode 73. Instead, we'll be looking at the impact the abdication had on the United States and President Wilson. So a bit of a different treatise, but fascinating nonetheless. So, as we ended off last day, the United States was in a tough spot by the end of 1916. By and large, the American people wanted nothing to do with the war, but there was growing concern that the war might want something to do with them. Incidents like the explosion at Black Tom Island and the exploits of U-53 off the Newport coast had demonstrated that the United States was not as isolated as once assumed. Despite their growing unease, the re-elected Woodrow Wilson was optimistic that 1917 would offer a chance to return to some degree of normalcy. Frustrated by events in Europe, Wilson hoped to set his attention back to domestic reform, and continue the progressive agenda he had embarked upon 5 years earlier. This dream, however, would be short-lived. On January 31st, the Germans announced the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare. With just 24 hours notice, the Germans declared the waters around Great Britain, France, and Italy a war zone. Belligerent ships were to be sunk on sight while neutral ships, including those of the Stars and Stripes, were given one month to find alternative routes. For Wilson, the German announcement turned the world upside down. Coming just one week after his latest peace initiative fell through, the President was in no mood to entertain a maritime debate with Berlin. So, before a joint session of Congress on February 3rd, Wilson officially broke diplomatic relations with Germany. thereby making good on the terms outlined in the Sussex Pledge. Wilson just took the first step towards war, but he was careful not to overstep. He was determined to keep the United States free of the struggle, and so instead of chastising the Germans, he offered them an olive branch. In his address, Wilson made clear that he did not believe the Germans would make good on their threats. He said that Americans were sincere friends of the German people, And would not believe, and I quote, they are hostile to us unless and until we are obliged to believe it. Wilson then went on to say that only overt acts could convince him otherwise. Wilson spoke for fifteen minutes, and of the two thousand or so words in his speech, it is those two words, overt acts, that we need to focus on. In Wilson's calculations, an overt act had to be something so terrible and irredeemable that it left the US no option but to retaliate. Trouble was, what would this overt act look like? Was it the sinking of an American ship? Most likely yes, but if so, did it matter what type of ship? Was sinking an ocean liner more overt than a merchant ship? If so, did the victim count factor in? Was the loss of crew members less overt than civilians? If a U.S. ship sank and 50 Americans drowned, was that more or less overt than if 100 drowned aboard a French ship? You can probably see where I'm going with this. These were just some of the questions no one had answers to. Wilson's overt criteria was left ambiguous, which made America's stance more mercurial than necessary. But Wilson had done this deliberately. Why? In short, he hoped the Germans would reverse their policy. He hoped that they would recall the U-boats and admit the whole thing was just one big PR stunt. Now, the notion that the Germans would simply go along with this is not as ridiculous as it sounds, if it is kept in its appropriate context. Remember, the Germans had recalled the U-boats twice already. Once in 1915 after the Lusitania, and again in 1916 after the Sussex. Thus. Wilson had no reason to doubt it happening again. Nonetheless, the decision to break diplomatic ties with Germany was met with popular support. It showed that the United States stood by the Sussex Pledge, and was ready to defend its own political and economic interests. Media outlets proclaimed the resumption of submarine warfare as the practical equivalent of a declaration of war. In short, accepting German demands would be a national humiliation. It would mean the banning of overseas travel and trade, thus stunting the economic boom America had enjoyed since 1914. Historian G.J. Meyer suggests that if Wilson wanted a declaration of war, he most likely would have gotten it. Neither the people nor Congress could have blamed him if he had. So we should ask, why didn't he? Part of the answer rests in Wilson's obsession with public consensus. Remember, the public had no desire to get involved, and a few dozen German submarines operating thousands of kilometres away was not exactly the most foolproof justification. Not every American lived on the Atlantic coast, and those who resided in the North, South, or Midwest could not get worked into a war fever over some maritime trade dispute. That is not to say they were not horrified by what they read. They most definitely were, But there was an unspoken belief that those who traveled aboard belligerent ships during wartime had, for lack of a better term, put themselves in harm's way. Now, that may sound like a cruel thing to say about your neighbor. But remember, the public understood what this war was. They had read about it daily and understood its character. They were not oblivious. They were terrified. They understood that if the United States were to get pulled in, it would not be some one foot in, one foot out kind of deal. Intervention would cause total disruption of everyday life, including conscription, mass mobilization, and other wonderful fun things. In a word, the American people took the threat of intervention very seriously. Furthermore, it wasn't as if U-boats were killing Americans indiscriminately. The cold, heartless math backs that statement up. Between 1914 and April 1917, a total of 144 Americans had died because of U-boat and mining activity. Of those 144 souls, 128 had been on the Lusitania. The first American casualties of the 1917 U-boat campaign occurred on February 25th, when the British liner, RMS Laconia, was torpedoed en route to England. Of the 292 passengers and crew, 12 drowned, including three Americans, a mother and daughter from Chicago, and an African-American crew member. These were the first American deaths caused by a U-boat since August 1915. Was the Laconia the overt act Wilson was looking for? Well, Wilson himself, and the bulk of the public, did not seem to think so. Despite the fact that two of the deceased had been close friends of First Lady Edith Wilson, the Laconia had been a British ship not American. Furthermore, the Laconia had been armed with eight 6-inch guns, and had a history of war service as a coastal patrol vessel down in East Africa. Thus, it did not fit the ambiguous, overt criteria. News of the Laconia sinking could not have reached Washington at a more inopportune time. Congress was in session, and would you believe it, they were debating whether American ships should be armed with deck guns and other anti-submarine measures. You know, like the Laconia had been. Wilson believed that arming the vessels would deter U-boats from approaching US ships, and while that sounded great in theory, it also risked a dangerous precedent. You see, most U-boat captains still observed prize law when dealing with US ships, meaning the U-boat would surface, allow those aboard to get into lifeboats, and then sink the ship using explosive charges or the U-boat's deck gun. U-boat operators knew American vessels were unarmed, and so granted them this extra bit of chivalry. But once you slap a bunch of guns onto every merchant ship you have, that dynamic suddenly changes. Congress was rightly concerned this would force U-boat captains to act more aggressively, and result in more American lives being put at risk. That was actually the point being raised when news of the Laconia rippled through the chamber, which caused quite a stir among the representatives. Fearing the armed ship bill would cause more harm than good, members of Congress opted to filibuster, which postponed the vote until March. Wilson was understandably furious. The controversy around the armed ship bill would soon be overshadowed by what transpired next. On the evening of February 25th, yes, the same day as the Congressional filibuster, Wilson was in his study when he received a knock on the door. In the doorway stood State Department Counselor Frank Polk. The 46-year-old Polk looked shaken and exhausted. Polk then produced a document that stunned Wilson into silence. That document was the fully deciphered Zimmerman telegram. The story of how the Zimmerman telegram was intercepted decoded and then delivered to the president is a topic we could devote an entire series to, but since I cannot make heads or tails of cryptography, a few highlights will have to suffice. You'll remember from episode 68 part A that the British had first intercepted the Zimmerman telegram during the early hours of January 17th. Since that fateful morning, the telegram spent the next 39 days locked in the desk of Admiral William Hall. The man in charge of Room 40's codebreaking operation. Over those 39 days, only two men knew of its existence. One was Admiral Hall, and the other was his senior codebreaker, Nigel de Grey, the man who intercepted it. Hall and de Grey faced an impossible dilemma. Their orders required them to share such explosive material with London, but they also understood there was too much at stake. You see, the Americans had no idea the British were listening in on their cables, and Hall was not about to risk blowing Room 40's cover by exposing the telegram too early. Remember, the telegram intercepted on January 17th was only partially deciphered. They would need a second copy in order to finish the encryption. And Hall and de Grey knew it was only a matter of time before a second copy appeared, most likely when the German ambassador in Washington related to his counterpart in Mexico City. So, Hall and de Grey defied orders. They did not tell their own government until February 5th, two days after the US broke ties with Germany. And that, my friends, was no coincidence. Hall's patience paid off. On February 19th, so just two weeks after London was informed, a second copy of the telegram was obtained which de Grey deciphered soon after. Admiral Hall then went straight to British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour. Balfour then paid a visit to American Ambassador Walter Hines Page. Page and Balfour agreed that yes, the weather is rather splendid, and ended their meeting before long. Thus, it fell to Page to concoct a story of how the telegram went from British to American hands. Page's explanation was actually quite brilliant. In short, Page explained that the British had obtained the telegram through their spy rings in Mexico, and the reason they could decipher it was because the British possessed a similar codebook to the one used for German-Latin American correspondence. Rice then added that if the State Department needed further proof, they should check the outgoing cables at the now-vacant German embassy. As Michael Nyberg writes, the full story of the Zimmermann telegram became clear only many years later. But this should not diminish the effect it had on both the President and American public. Wilson was apoplectic. He took it as further evidence that Germany was mocking him, while playing the woe is me card against the British. Wilson wanted to make the telegram public right away, but he was advised to hold off until more information could be obtained both the Senate and the people were bound to ask questions regarding its origins. Nevertheless, on February 28th, Wilson sent a copy of the telegram to the Associated Press, who then distributed it to newspapers across the country. On the morning of March 1, the Zimmerman telegram was front page across the United States. And by front page, I mean front page, in full, in plain English. The news that the German government was conniving to slice off parts of the United States and return it to Mexico enraged the public. It also struck a chord in the South and Midwest, where the war seemed furthest away. Here, finally, was the overt act Wilson was waiting for. For the first time, major segments of the American press called for war, and the entire nation now perceived Germany as a hostile and unworthy power. For two days, the United States hung in suspended animation. Neutralists and German sympathizers initially thought the telegram was a British forgery, and pressed Wilson to prove its authenticity. Fortunately, the administration wouldn't need to. On March 3rd, the speculation over the telegram's authenticity was abruptly ended when Zimmerman, for some absolutely dumbfounded reason, publicly admitted being the author. Now, I am not a fan of alternative history, and I try not to concern myself with the what-ifs, but here is one of the few instances where I cannot help myself. If Zimmerman had said, nope, I didn't write that, then the Wilson administration would have found it exceedingly difficult to prove otherwise. Rice's explanation would not have held up under intense scrutiny, and the State Department cannot admit the real story, since that would mean admitting that the British had been spying unbeknownst for the past three years. Things got even dicier when an erroneous report in the New York World suggested that Wilson received the telegram back on February 3rd. This makes Zimmerman's confession all the more perplexing. Whether you were a neutralist or not, Zimmerman's admission laid to rest any debate over Germany's post-war intentions. To quote Barbara Tuckman, Zimmerman shot an arrow in the air and brought down neutrality like a dead duck. But the question remains, why did Zimmerman confess? Well, there are two plausible explanations. The first explanation suggests that Zimmerman was so embarrassed that he blurted it out without thinking. This does not seem likely since Zimmerman had no obligation to respond in the first place, and even if he did, He had two days to come up with something at least partially competent. The second theory makes a lot more sense. When planning the second U-boat campaign, German naval leaders had acknowledged American intervention as acceptable collateral. Thus, Zimmerman felt no need to deny the charge, since his government was no longer trying to avoid antagonizing the United States. In any event, Zimmerman confessed, and that is all that matters. But what makes the whole episode even more hilarious was that even after the telegram was revealed, the German government refused to believe their encrypted code had been cracked. When asked how it ended up public knowledge, the official German response was to blame dissenters employed by the foreign office. Meanwhile, the codebreakers in room 40 slipped right on by. So by March 1917, the calls for war in the United States had risen to a crescendo. On March 9th, Wilson used an executive order to bypass Congress and made law the armed ship bill. Newspapers soon called the Zimmerman telegram the Prussian invasion plot, and everyone acknowledged that a plotted move upon American soil meant there could be no more talk of neutrality. But there is something else we need to account for here. The Zimmerman telegram was made public on March 1st, and confirmed by Zimmerman two days later. Yet the United States would not formally declare war until April 6th, a full 33 days later. What happened in this gap? The answer to that question lies squarely on the shoulders of President Wilson. Over the four weeks, Wilson did what he often did when faced with a difficult decision. He withdrew into his office for some quiet contemplation. He received few visitors, and only left the White House to play golf. To his advisors, this was perfectly in line with his character. Wilson had always been a bit of a loner, a man who only made decisions after convincing himself his choice was right. Historians have had a tough time quantifying what was going through Wilson's mind during this time. Even his closest advisors were unsure but there are a few things we can infer. In short, Wilson needed time to think and to pray. On the evening of March 4th, he released a statement to the press describing himself as facing a condition unparalleled in the history of the country, perhaps unparalleled in the history of any modern government. Despite his numerous and well-accounted-for faults, Wilson did everything he could to keep the United States out, and whether you love or hate the man, leading America into the European charnel house was the last thing he had ever wanted. He hoped common sense would prevail. He hoped that cooler heads in Germany would not have forced America into a position where she had no choice left. He was angry. He was frustrated, pissed off, and sad. Three months earlier, Wilson had said it would be a crime against civilization for the United States to go to war and in March 1917, he still believed it. Outside his office, the calls for war grew louder. State governors drew up mobilization plans for the National Guard. Ted Roosevelt threatened to skin Wilson alive if he did not declare war. And yet, Wilson waited, telling the Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, quote, I do not care for popular demand. I want to do right, whether popular or not, end quote. Wilson's disgust at becoming a war president was palatable. Lansing noted that any mention of the conflict would see Wilson's jaw set. And yet, Wilson waited. Why? Part of the answer lay in Britain. As we discussed last day, the United States had a significant financial investment in Allied victory. Between 1914 and 1917, The Entente had purchased 1.7 billion in materials from the United States, and by April 1917, the coffers were running low. Britain owed 1 billion, France 300 million, and Russia 121 million. In short, the cupboard was stripped of all collateral. The war was costing the British 5 million pounds per day, 40% of which had been borrowed from U.S. banks. Wilson was well aware of this. In late 1916, the Federal Reserve had put out a notice advising against additional unsecured loans. If one of the Allied powers was forced out, America would be flirting with financial ruin. But to argue the President made up his mind because the merchants of death slash Wall Street said so is an oversimplification. Certainly, war and economics have always been closely linked but the financial incentives were no contest would compare it to Wilson's desire for moral and pious reasons. That being said, it cannot be discounted that the economic angle must have had a marginal effect on the President during those tense weeks. In the meantime, there was startling news out of Russia. Our third event. On March 2nd, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the Russian throne. After 300 years, the Romanovs were no longer the rulers of Russia. In their place came the newly established Provisional Government. The Provisional Government was headed by Prince Georgi Lvov, not Alexander Kerensky, as I incorrectly stated last day. Kerensky would not emerge until later in the spring, so I apologize for the hiccup. Anyway, Prince Lvov and the Provisional Government sought to bring democratic reform to Russia. On the day of its formation, the Provisional Government announced amnesty to political prisoners, freedom of the press, and constitutional assembly. The Provisional Government also made clear it would continue the war to Russia's fullest extent, and sought victory without territorial compensation, which included the internationalization of the Bosphorus Straits. This was music to Wilson's ears. By committing themselves to the war, the provisional government doomed itself to failure. In just six months, it would be swept from power by Lenin's Bolsheviks, killing any hopes of a democratic Russia. But for now, the abdication of the Tsar and the rise of a pro-democratic government came as welcome news. The March Revolution in Russia had two major implications. First the Allies had gained a new reinvigorated partner. It was hoped that the revolutionary spirit will instill a new vigor in the Russian soldier, now that they had something to fight for other than the Romanovs and their imperial aspirations. Second, the Allies had also lost the embarrassing linkage to Romanov despotism, which had been an ideological dilemma since the start of the war. In Britain, France, and Italy, liberals and socialists applauded the change, the autocratic czar was gone. Now the war could truly be framed as a struggle for democracy against the autocrats of the Central Powers. This was not lost on Wilson. In the United States, news of the czar's abdication was met with widespread enthusiasm. Jewish Americans from Poland and the Ukraine were thrilled. In all, the American people welcomed the change, believing the peasants had achieved their freedom at long last. The global strategic outlook changed overnight. The United States now had a moral obligation to take a more aggressive stand. Famed American writer Walter Littman noted that with the czar out of the picture, the United States can now enter the war with a clear conscience and whole heart, because the lines between autocracy and democracy were crystal clear. Thus, Lippmann wrote, It fell to the United States the beacon of world democracy, to help Russia survive its crucible of birth. Wilson was so optimistic that the United States became the first major power to recognize the provisional government on March 22nd. Did the United States join the war to defend Russia's budding democracy? No, it did not. But events in Russia provided Wilson with the moral justification he was searching for. But was this enough? well, no, not quite. Then came more trouble on the high seas. Over four days in March, four US ships were sunk by U-boats. The Algonquin on March 12th, the Vigilancia on the 16th, the City of Memphis on the 17th, and the Tanker, Illinois on March 18th. In each instance, German U-boats abided by prize law. Only one sinking, that of the Vigilancia, resulted in loss of life. Fifteen crew members, including six Americans, drowned when their lifeboat capsized in the choppy swell. U-boats would claim 400 ships in March 1917, sinking 564,500 tons. Collectively, these four sinkings must have convinced Wilson there was no other option. On March 21st, he called for Congress to meet on April 2nd. He also authorized the War Department to take control of the National Guard and to increase the size of the regular army. He also ordered senior naval official, Rear Admiral William Sims, to contact the Royal Navy. Sims was ordered to London at once and told to travel in civilian clothes and under assumed names. April 2nd, 1917, was a dark and dreary day in Washington, DC. Wilson spoke for 45 minutes. Unlike FDR two decades later, Wilson still did not have an overt act to point to. The Zimmerman telegram was bad, yes, but the United States had not been attacked, nor were U-boats targeting their ships indiscriminately. Thus, the theme of the address was that the United States no longer had a choice. When reading the manuscript, The word choice is rather interesting. There is little evidence of bravado or righteous anger. It is a sobering speech, with words like solemn, distressing, oppressive, and tragic sprinkled throughout. Wilson welcomed the new Russian government, calling it a right partner for a league of honor, and made clear that America's war was against Germany only, not Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, or the Ottoman Empire. He emphasized that Americans could not force democracy on the world, but they had to do their part in defending it. In the end, America was making an inescapable choice, made necessary by the actions of others. Wilson concluded his speech with the following statement. Quote, it is a distressing and oppressive duty, gentlemen of the Congress, which I have performed in thus addressing you. There are, it may be, many months of fiery trial and sacrifice ahead of us. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seeming to be in the balance. But the right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right by such a small concert of free peoples, as shall bring peace and safety to all nations, and make the world itself at last free. To such a task we can dedicate our lives and our fortunes, everything that we are and everything that we have, with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood, and fight for the principles that gave her birth and happiness in the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she can do no other. End quote. Wilson was greeted with uproarious applause from the chamber. Representatives flocked to congratulate him, while others stood and waved miniature American flags. That evening, Wilson admitted to being troubled by the response, saying, quote, My message tonight was a message of death to our young men. How strange it seems to applaud that. Wilson's congressional address on April 2nd was not a declaration of war, but Wilson was asking Congress for permission to do so. The speech was followed by four days of debate. On April 4th, the Senate authorized hostilities by a vote of 82 to 6, followed on April 6th by the House of Representatives, 375 to 50. The House debate lasted 14 hours from 10 a.m. to just after 3 a.m. the following morning. Not since the War of 1812 had more negative votes been cast, which serves as a reminder that neutrality did not go silently. In any event, the resolution passed. On April 6th, Wilson signed the Declaration of War in the White House lobby. The United States of America was now at war. Before we head out the door, we should pause and reflect on what all this meant, not just for the United States, but for the Great War as a whole. The first thing we should note is that unlike Italy or Romania, the United States joined the Allies as an associated power, rather than concluding a treaty tying itself to the Entente. In refusing to join the Entente, Wilson sought to preserve his own free hand to shape a peace settlement not necessarily bound by the territorial promises the Entente had made to each other since 1914, and this will have huge implications during the 1919 peace conferences. Joining the Entente would also have committed the United States to fight all the central powers, and Wilson wanted war with Germany alone. The United States would not declare war on Austria-Hungary until December, and would only break diplomatic relations with Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. Furthermore, a host of neutral countries followed the lead of the United States in joining the Allies as associated powers, including Liberia, eight Latin American states, and four South American countries. These countries were Brazil, Costa Rica, Cuba, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua, Panama, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, and Uruguay. Aside from Brazil, which deployed a naval division, None of them contributed armed forces to the war effort, but did their part in seizing German ships who had been anchored in their neutral ports. It should also be noted that the American entry into the war also affected the countries that chose to remain neutral, namely Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Holland, who maintained some degree of trade with both the Allies and Central Powers. These nations just lost the most powerful champion of international rights, especially in regards to maritime matters. The United States eventually joined the British in seizing 132 Dutch ships, equaling 650,000 tons. The impact of America's declaration of war was immediately felt. While her army would need time to prepare, her navy could be deployed immediately. This was welcome news to the British, who by the spring of 1917 were starved for ships. In April, U-boats would sink a remarkable 860,330 tons, a monthly total not even surpassed by Germany's Kriegsmarine wolf packs of the Second World War. Now, there is a lot more we can say about America's impact on the Allied war effort, namely as it led directly to the adoption of the convoy system. But I think we have covered enough territory for one day. When we meet again, we will be over in Russia, exploring the finer details of the Tsar's abdication and formation of the provisional government. While a democratic Russia was welcomed by the Entente, it caused great concern in Germany. With the United States now at war, the Germans would seek to dismantle the new Russian government by any means necessary. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been Episode 72 of The Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.